stand together this morning. We're going to look at a message I call Money Matters from Proverbs chapter 6. As we continue on in this series, we call God's wisdom for our lives. Proverbs 6 and 9. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Uh, no, uh, this passage of scripture is not in the Bible as a warning to those who tend to go to sleep in church. It could be, <laughs> but it's not. Uh, instead, it is really a part of a discussion that began back in chapter 3 that we saw uh, with those two great statements uh, where he said, happy is the man who finds wisdom and wisdom then is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. And so Solomon has a lot to say about that elusive human quality we call happiness, how uh, to be happy, how to avoid unhappiness. And today's message uh, comes from the perspective of finances. That's the title. And it could be uh, directed in two different ways. We could simply say uh, that money matters. And in, in that statement, it would be discussing the importance of money. Money matters. Or we could say money matters. And in that sense, we're talking about all of the things in our life that in some way are affected by our finances and the financial aspects of life. Either way, both of them would be appropriate, but this is simply a, a subject, a continuation of one that he introduced in chapter 3 when he spoke of those numerous blessings that come of choosing wisdom. And like the subject of marital fidelity and faithfulness that we saw last week, uh, this is a subject that Solomon discusses again and again throughout the book of Proverbs. Money matters. Money matters. The instruction that he give are timeless because every generation will have to make decisions about money. Articles I considered this week in preparation for this message uh, spoke of how current generations of young people are finding the American dream out of reach. Um, when Nancy and I started out our life together at age 19, when we were married, uh, we both worked jobs, and uh, they both paid about $5 an hour uh, before taxes. Uh, our rent was $180 a month, including utilities. Our car payments were around $80 a month. So on the roughly $1,200 to $1,300 a month that we brought home after taxes, Nancy and I lived fairly well. We were able to uh, pay for a lot of our schooling. We had some Pell Grants that we qualified because for back then because once you married, you didn't have to go by your, pa your parents' uh, income anymore uh, as to whether you would qualify for grants. And so uh, we qualified for some grants and scholarships along the way. And uh, that was greatly, greatly helpful in uh, those early years but we spring forward from 1978 to 2024. And where Nancy and I were making $5 an hour, there are multitudes of places where starting out employees can make $15 an hour. And even higher income is possible for young workers. 
That means that young people starting out in life can make between $600 and $800 a week. But unfortunately, apartment rent, if you can find one, and housing rent, if you can find a house, is going to be between $1,000 and $1,500 a month, including utilities. College will usually improve your ability to make money, but it can also increase your debt load. Multitudes of young couples in America and in Arkansas today are dealing with over $60,000 in student loan debt by the time they graduate and get married. We haven't even talked about transportation, car to get around, cell phone, got to have a cell phone, internet, got to have self, uh, internet, health insurance, got to have health insurance, car insurance, got to have car insurance, life insurance, and then, of course, that word we never like to talk about, taxes, taxes. Man, it makes my head hurt just to think about it. It really does. And the end result in of all this is fairly well documented in today's world. This article that said that the American dream was out of reach for many young people starting life these days. And the number one culprit, of course, is the cost of home ownership. On one side of the equation, living in a cabin as we all do, uh, we see the incredible numbers of homes being built and sold very rapidly. Uh, many of these houses will sell from between $250,000 to $300,000 and up. We might conclude, well, everybody's doing quite well. But the fact is, folk, our world is struggling under an unsustainable debt load. Unsustainable. Uh, some of the articles that came out of uh, the discussion of the World Economic Forum that's meeting in Davio City, and please don't think that because I mentioned them that I'm in favor of what they're doing. I'm just saying this is the reality of the world that we live in. But some of the articles talked about how that the cumulative debt load carried by all the countries in the world is now $88 trillion. Whew. Over $34 trillion of that is owed by our own nation. $34 trillion. By the way, that statistic has doubled over the last 10 years. And there's only one way for it to go, folks. And that's higher. Living on credit has turned into a national and international reality. When governments spend money without increasing taxes, they must fund the new expenses by borrowing. If it continues to do this long enough, then it becomes a situation where the government has to print more and more money. Hope you're following my thinking. It has to print more and more money in order to remain viable and continue to pay its debt and service uh, the needs of its, of its constituents. We see a prime example of what this is doing in Argentina right now, right now, where their last reports from December of last year said that inflation was at 211%. Argentina last year. We're having our own battle with this here in the United States. 
You see, you can't live on credit forever. You can't sustain an economy on credit. And so when it comes to finances and how we're going to deal with it, these are issues that we are facing today. And every generation has to face. Solomon was well acquainted with the subject of wealth. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 1.15 that the king, that Solomon, made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones. Uh, now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land and seen how many rocks there are laying around, you, you might conclude that this is hyperbole, and it really is. Uh, but it is the way that the Bible has of describing for us, uh, by use of this figure, how successful Solomon was at building the wealth of the kingdom. Solomon knew about money. He knew how to use money. He knew how to make money. He was really, really good at it. And besides that, as long as he was following God and his wisdom, then he was greatly blessed by God, exactly as God told him when he was a little boy. And he asked God to give him wisdom. So Solomon had a lot to say about money. And all the way up in the New Testament, Jesus talked about Solomon. Luke uh, chapter 12, he talked about the lilies. Consider the lilies and how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon in all his glory. You see, Solomon was not just a mythical figure. Jesus Christ knew about the wealth and the opulence of Solomon. He knew it. He knew it well. He was the source of it. It wasn't a myth. It was real. And so today we're going to spend a few moments discussing then what Solomon says to his sons about money. In this chapter we'll bring in a few other references uh, from the book and other places. But He's going to begin basically where I began this morning with the danger of debt. The danger of debt. Proverbs 6 and 1. My son, if you become surety for your friend. Now let me pause there and make this clear for anybody who might not get it. Uh, what this is talking about is what we call today co-signing on a loan. Co-signing on a loan. If you become surety for your friend, that is, uh, you take on an obligation uh, to pay back your friend's debt in case he doesn't or she doesn't. If you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth, you are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Bible doesn't just say when it comes to this issue of assuming debt for somebody else uh, that uh, we shouldn't do it. He will go on in Proverbs 17 and 18 and say it's stupid to guarantee someone else's loan. That's uh, the contemporary English version, but almost all of the versions that you will look at it will talk about how foolish it is, uh, how a person is, is behaving as if they had no sense, uh, all kinds of different ways the Bible says this, but this was the most concise. It's stupid to guarantee someone else's loan, Proverbs 17 and 18. But uh, it's not just the subject of co-signing for debt and assuming someone else's debt. 
Although that was obviously the main side of that concern that Solomon had for his sons, princes that they were going to be, crown princes that they were, they knew, he knew, uh, he knew probably by experience how many requests that they would get uh, to become the, the surety for someone else's debt or borrowing. Uh, so while that was the one he was most concerned about, he still gave some general statements about debt that apply today as well as they ever did. Proverbs 22 and 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. That is about as plain as it gets. The borrower is the slave of the lender. Now, my parents were born in the middle of the Great Depression. My grandparents lived through it and the Great War, uh, in which my grandfather was uh, a veteran. My generation, the post World War II folks, were the product of a time of great prosperity that was fueled by some decisions that were made along the way. Uh, it was during the brain of President Richard Nixon when America was taken off the gold standard. It was set for a long time at $32 an ounce, if memory serves correctly. And if I'm wrong about that, please correct me after church. If it wasn't that, it was somewhere close to it. Uh, but during the, the uh, if I said the reign of King Richard or Nixon, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, that... Uh, I heard that a lot growing up in my somewhat democratic-leaning family household back in those days. Uh, but uh, they put us on an inflationary scale, and suddenly everybody's wages went up. All of a sudden, the home values skyrocketed. And those people who had the blessing of being in that situation were there, and, and those 80-something dollar-a-month house payments, which is what my parents had, 80-something dollar house payment for a brick home, three-bed, two-bath, nice home. And all of a sudden, their wages had skyrocketed, and many of them were able to pay off that debt very quickly. Some of you might have lived through that as well. There were many other things that happened along the way in those early years. And prosperity came. And though there's been some setbacks along the way, that prosperity has, for the most part, continued. Uh, now we have two generations of adults who've never known what it's like to live off the land. Never known what it's like to live in a world where credit cards didn't exist. And where borrowing money was not possible. If you didn't have the money to buy what you needed, for the most part, that meant you would do without. And so would your family. And the odd thing is that the world had lived that way for generations and generations and generations and generations. The rich could borrow money. But the average person, you had to build what you had. Uh, Land ownership was really not possible. And they worked, and they worked hard to provide for themselves and their family. Credit has turned into a way of life. You say, Brother Rich, do you owe money? I sure do. Uh, I, I wish I didn't. 
but I, I bought a house when I moved to Cabot. I still owe money on that. I bought a truck not too long ago. I still owe money on that. But that's about it. That's about it for me. If the Bible is true, and the Bible is true, then this lifestyle that is fueled by a money supply and all the credit that anybody could possibly want, all of this will go away. It's going to evaporate. It's going to go away. And I'm not calling you this morning all to become preppers. Although if you decide to become a prepper, I'm not going to talk bad about you. And if it all gets really bad, I'm going to remember where you live. <laughs> Might need to borrow a little food along the way, a bag of flour or two, something. Anyway, um, I'm not calling you all to become preppers, but I am calling us to take a long look at what the Bible says about debt and its danger and to think seriously about the issue of living on debt and fueling our lifestyle by credit. It's dangerous. I also had to think this week about the fact that in a way we've all become surety for a friend. We might not ever think about signing somebody else's note to help them buy something. We might not ever think about doing that. But in a way, we are all surety for someone else's debt. That $34 trillion that is owed by the United States government, you know who owes that? We do. We do. If you want to see what your portion of it is, you can go to the debt clock dot whatever it is. And it'll show you because it's got a lot of useful information on there about the federal debt. I tell you folks, we need to pray for our politicians, our political leaders of all kinds and regardless of party. They have some very difficult decisions ahead and they don't have a lot of time left to make them. may already be too late. There's a danger to credit. The Bible's been telling us all along. Solomon offers a solution to it all. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. If you have ever jumped a deer at any time in your life, if you have ever spooked up a covey of quail, then you know exactly what he's talking about. You run. You run. From debt. Don't run to it, young people. Run from it. Deliver yourself. Give it your attention. And so there's the danger of debt, and then there's the value of work. Verse 6 Go to the ants, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. You see the connection between human happiness. And, and money is, is one that we all should understand. We all have our own proverb. We say, well, you know, money can't buy happiness. That's true. Somebody else added another one and said, money can't buy happiness, but it does make misery a lot more tolerable. I, I understand those things. We understand that instinctively. And yet we know that one of the big threats to happiness is if our money matters is not what it should be. And so he calls us to consider the ant. And I'll do this very quickly. We don't have to spend a lot of time here. 
Uh, he says, first of all, that the ant is self-motivated. They have no captain, overseer, or ruler. The ant is self-motivated. The ant is hard-working. You all know that. If you have any doubt about that, go home and kick a fire ant pile and run. Now, you kids, I'm kidding, okay? Okay? It is, the ant is hard-working. And, and this is the point it makes. The ant gathers supplies, gets more than is needed, and does what with it? Saves it. Saves it. So the ant is self-motivated. They don't have to have somebody standing over them telling them what to do all the time. The ant works hard. It gathers more than is needed and then saves it. See, Solomon knew that there would be a time when food, when money, and all the things that go along with it is not so easily obtained or made. No matter how hard you might be willing to work for it. There have never been so many people on the planet as there are today. Never. Resources are dwindling. Food supplies are fragile. And yet our prosperity seems to be continuing. We need to all be thinking about putting back resources. Working hard while we can. Putting back. The contrast is also given in the passage. Consider the ant, but then there's also the sluggard to consider. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Think about this passage the next time you punch the snooze button. For the third time, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you ones. Don't give in to the prevailing mentality, Solomon says, of become a person who lays around and sleeps all day. Maybe the only thing he or she works is her thumbs playing video games. Don't be that person that shows up at, at Walmart at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and just got out of bed, obviously. Don't be, don't be a, a sluggard waiting on somebody else to support you. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. So he extols in the value, the virtue, if you will, of hard work, of preparing for the future, of putting things back when you can. And then he sums it all up with the destruction of the wicked. In verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his finger. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly, and suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. As he uh, puts this path of wickedness within the overall context of this passage, uh, he then is talking about how people decide then, some do, uh, to make a living by dishonest means. And that doesn't mean necessarily that all of them will come, become a thief, although he even talks about that later on in the chapter. Uh, we won't cover that this morning. Uh, but he does talk about a wicked path that people might choose uh, by becoming a worthless person. It walks with a perverse mouth. 
and is out then for dishonest gain. It's been one of the great things that I've noted over the course of my lifetime is to see what people will do for money and who they'll do it to. It's been amazing to me. Never ceased to be amazed. He gives us a description of this in verse 13. What's he talking about? Well, he talks about that person that winks with his eye. That's one of the favorite uh, 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 tactics of a con artist. Uh, somebody who is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, somebody who's trying to put something over on someone else, willing to say whatever he has to say to get an advantage. A person then who's out to get money and he doesn't care what he has to do to get it. Uh, he's shuffling his feet. That would refer to a person who's not straightforward in his effort. So we call it dragging the feet. A person who's just dragging their way around, not working much. Uh, he points with his fingers. That is, if something has gone wrong, it's somebody else's fault. Uh, he's quick to point out, I didn't do it. It's not me. It's this one's fault. This one's not. I was there, man. I was working. I was doing my part. It's old so-and-so that didn't do it. It's always somebody else's fault. And uh, perversity and evil then is in his heart. He's always conniving. He's always looking for a way to take advantage or get ahead. And one of the easiest ways he knows to do that is to set people against one another. Therefore, he's constantly sowing discord so that he can position himself or herself to take over when the competition wipes themselves out. How does this play out? Uh, my dad once said of one of the men who worked at his plant, and dad uh, worked at a, a company in Spring Hill, Louisiana. It's no longer there, no trace of it ever being there, but... Uh, he'd spent his life working there, his working years. And he, he spoke of somebody who he was responsible for. He was in a camp manage, or, or plant management. And he said, that man works harder to keep from working than he would if he would just work. And maybe you've been on a job a time or two where you knew somebody like that. He works harder to keep from working than he would if he'd just work. But I had the opportunity then to work at my dad's plant one summer as a summer employee going into college the next year. And I learned that there was one thing that man worked harder than almost anybody else. His mouth. He was constantly looking for something to complain about, some inequity, somebody that wasn't being done fairly, some grievance he could file with the union, some gripe he could put in about management. He kept it stirred up all the time. And then there was the evil that came out of his mouth constantly. Thank God there were no ladies around to hear some of the vile and foul things that men talked about. He was a wicked man. He was a wicked man. I saw no semblance of any righteousness in his life. Preacher, you're being judgmental. No, I worked with the man every day for three months. I know what I saw constantly. And so Solomon describes a wicked person like that, a person who is working hard to keep from working, a person who stirs up a lot of trouble constantly, always looking for a way to get ahead, always willing to do whatever he had to do to get, some, to get it in on somebody else or, or get something that belonged to somebody else. 
The way of the wicked may seem to get them an advantage. I think of another proverb that says, Nice guys finish last. Have you ever heard that one? Nice guys finish last. But Solomon brings up something else in connection with this whole discussion. And it's a passage that you know well. It's the most famous, probably, passage in Proverbs 6. Verse 16, these six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. So the six things he hates, the seventh is an abomination, he says. A proud look, pride, is number one on the list. A lying tongue, lies, God hates lies. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Number five, feet that are swift in running to evil. Number six, a false witness. He doesn't just lie, but he lies on somebody else. And the seventh, that is an abomination, is the one who sows discord among brethren. And remember, see, that's, that's how he introduced this whole subject, the wicked person. He's weaking with his eyes, devising evil continually. He sows discord. So basically everything that he introduces us to in verse 12, 13, 14, 15, then he follows up to say these six things the Lord hates. So that wicked person who thinks that he's getting ahead, that wicked person who goes in this direction then and thinks that he's getting by with everything needs to be reminded there is a God in heaven. And he is watching over the affairs of men. He sees it all. He sees it all. And that person that turns to a life of wickedness Uh, Trying to make it by taking advantage of others, sowing discord constantly, swift, uh, looking for evil that he can run to, looking uh, reckless disregard for what he's doing to others. That person is carrying all this out under the watching eyes of a righteous God. We say nice guys finish last. The only way that could be true, folk, is if we look at the wrong finish line. Because if we look at the right finish line, they see the real finish line is determined after these eyes close in death. It is appointed unto man, the Bible says, once to die. But after this, the judgment And the only way that nice guys finish last is if we're looking at the wrong finish line. We're out of time this morning. But I'm going to close with Ephesians 4.28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. You see, there's an ulterior purpose the Bible gives us for our work. So that we work, we work hard, we labor, 
And obviously, we have to meet our needs and the needs of our family, but there's something else. Uh, we, we want to be like the ant and store up uh, for what is to come, but, but there's something else. We work hard, we provide for ourselves, we store up, but always in our minds. Somebody one day is going to need some help. And you remember the words of our Lord Jesus? It is more blessed to give than to receive. What a blessing it is to be on the giving side. Because we've made good choices and good financial decisions, now we can be on the giving side. And we can help somebody else along the way. Money matters. Let's stand together, please.